You've heard it said, uh, wherever the two or more are gathered, uh, there will be conflict. <laughs> the reality is, is relationships will test your faith. Uh, last week, uh, the weather was a little different. Uh, my family and I had the opportunity to go out and have a family picture taken. Uh, yeah, you think that. Um, and <laughs> you think that until you go through the process of having a family picture taken. Uh, the reality is, is that God has put me on planet Earth with these, uh, this small group of humans. And, and the reality is, is that I love them dearly, but we're different. Some of them are not morning people. I love mornings. I wake up in a good mood in the morning. As God's people should. And even this morning, even this morning, our five-year-old was not having the morning. I don't know why she woke up so early, but uh, it was just one of those mornings where her and I were just not on the same page. I'm convinced the older I get that God gives us families not to make us happy, but to make us disciples. I think families in some ways, uh, and I would say healthy families in, in many ways, not perfect families, but healthy families in many ways are like a padded room that God gives us to practice discipleship with people who are safe. I mean, it's, just, it's an opportunity. I think marriage is this. And, and my wife and I met here. Uh, we're, we're committed to one another, but I, I believe this about our marriage. It's good. But I believe in many ways it is a laboratory where we get to experiment and figure out how to live and love like Jesus. Relationships are hard, y'all. And, and when I was assigned this text, I'll be honest, I assigned this, this topic, this is one of those things I've had to live with in like, community. Because I've learned this not only in my family, but also in the church and the 10 years spent as a minister in a local church and, and even just interacting with church leaders and church people, wherever two or more are gathered, goodness, there will be conflict. Relationships are hard. And I think there's, there's a healthy attitude that says, God has not put these people into my life to make us happy, but to make us disciples, to practice the discipline of learning to love and live like Jesus. And that means the people in my life are actually an opportunity to learn how to forgive and an opportunity to learn how to be patient, an opportunity to learn how to be selfless. Relationships are hard and they reveal our heart. Some of you will be going home for Thanksgiving and that scares you. Some of you will sit in conversations around chairs like these, and the conversations will not be like the conversations here. And there's a part of you that does not want to go home because relationships are hard. For some of you right now, relationships here are hard. Relationships in the dorm or a relationship in the dorm is hard. For some of you, dating relationships are hard. For some of you, co-working relationships are hard. So I'd like to have today in our time together what I would call, honestly, what has taken shape over the course of this semester as I prepared for this, this time, this moment. It has taken shape to be called um, what I have rehearsed in my mind over and over again, a three-chair conversation. And sometimes these three-chair conversations happen in a moment's notice and just in a millisecond of time. And sometimes these three-chair conversations happen over a lifetime as in a three-chair conversation perhaps with a parent or a family member, spouse or friend. 
And for this platform that really holds up foundationally this three-chair conversation, I want to have for a text. And because we were assigned a topic and not a text, I had to really kind of ask the question, where do we turn to in scripture to ask God to help us reorient our relationship? And of course, you just start flipping through the pages going, what should I preach? What should I preach? I landed on Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. My hunch is this, that for most of you, the reference does not call to mind a particular text. But my guess would be that if I were to tell you the label given it, since about the 17th century, depending on which scholar you believe, that if I told you this was the golden rule, you would go, oh, in fact, I would, I would suggest that even the average person on the street, whether they are following Jesus or not, would attribute this golden rule to something that Jesus said and be familiar with it. Now, I'll be honest that I hesitated even landing here, um, even once I had chosen it, there's several times where I've like wanted to back away from the text. And, and part of the reason is I know that we're so familiar with it, it's easy for us to become dismissive of it. But then I started looking at it again and recognized like this is a prominent feature in this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five through seven. It's like the summit of the summit. Uh, in many ways, this little phrase of Jesus is a bracket at the body of this Sermon on the Mount that began in chapter five where Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. And then this text ends that bracket by saying this is the law and the prophets. It seems like this summit moment in the sermon, but even in saying this is the law and the prophets, it seems like a summit moment for not just Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, but like this teaching of God in all of history of his people, this little phrase in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So it really did challenge me to look at it again and try to build this foundation from the text. Here's what it says. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. In many ways, what I want today is for God to reorient our relationships by first reorienting ourselves and our hearts to him. So I guess it makes sense that for us in this three-chair conversation dynamic that's happening here on stage, that we would look to one chair and we would recognize, because this is Ozark Christian College, after all, we have Jesus in front of the library, that we would have a chair for him. And, and perhaps what we'd want today is for, like, for him to be able to speak for himself. Because the reality is sometimes we will put words in Jesus' mouth and be like, see, Jesus is on my side, he says what I say. But I would want to put his word in his chair and let him speak for himself. And, and maybe you're looking at the text and you're looking at Matthew chapter seven, verse 12, and you're like, I, I don't see anything in chapter seven, verse 12 that says anything about God. So how in the world are you building the foundation of three chairs on that? I, I, I get you. And then I looked again at this word, so. So, whatever you wish. Oh, linking words can be rather important in the text. Did you know that this phrase comes right out of a context in verse 11 that we will fail to see the uniqueness of what Jesus has said if we miss that context? In fact, others have said about Jesus, oh, other people said this. 
I mean, rabbis said this, and other philosophers said this, and other religious leaders said things like this. Maybe sometimes in the negative, sometimes in the positive, maybe it means the same. But they fail to see the word so. Chapter 7, verse 11. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish. We just sang the song, Good, Good Father. And I want to challenge you today that in some of these microsecond conversations and even long over the hall of life conversations that you give God a chair in these conversations and ask the question, first of all, who is God? In the context, Jesus not only draws on the context of the previous verse, but actually the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And over and over again, God is referred to as Father. And I know for some of you that doesn't translate well, but God is described as a good father. He is a father who gives good gifts to his children when they ask. He is a God that you can trust. In fact, you can trust him so much that you don't even need to be anxious. You don't need to worry because he will provide for you. Look how he provides for the birds of the air. He's a good father. He's a good father that you can, you can trust him that he cares about you and loves you, that he will forgive you. He is a good father. And I think that for us to enter into this conversation, this three-chair conversation, that for us to have a healthy conversation, we must first have this conversation with God, the good father, the God who listens. And so we don't have to ramble on when we pray. The God who loves even those of us who are hostile against him. I've had these interactions throughout the course of the last few months where I'm sitting with my five-year-old daughter and it's just her and I at the kitchen table and all of a sudden I need to remember that God as a good father is here in the conversation. I don't know who sits in this chair. There might be a line of people who sit in this chair who need to sit in this chair and these might need to be conversations that need to be had. But before you have those conversations, you need to recognize who sits in this chair. And I fully believe this, that the Holy Spirit will shape our interactions with other people when we first allow the Holy Spirit to to cause us to recognize how our interactions have been shaped with God. And we allow the Holy Spirit to shape those interactions. The one we recognize what the Holy Spirit whispers into us, "You you have sinned, you have been forgiven, you have been a fool, you have gossiped, you have hurt people, you have criticized, but you have received mercy and you have been, you have been loved unconditionally. I'll be honest, as I said in this chair, in my own life, I need this reminder. Can I, can I take you to our kitchen again? I'm having this sermon take shape. This concept is a visible image in my head. And my wife and I start having a, let's just call it what we call it in front of the kids, a conversation. My wife and I are having a conversation, so here we are. At which point in my head, in my heart, I thought this about her. You are so stubborn. Some of you are married and you laughed. At this point, I could almost audibly hear the Holy Spirit, like nagging me from over here. Prompting is the word we use in the church, right? Prompting me from over here, saying, as if you're not stubborn. My wife and I are both firstborns, by the way. (laughs) That's great. Um, (laughs) At which point, I mean, I just want to like get you inside my head. At which point, 
the whole plank eye text came to mind. And, and I kind of like visibly just like turned to God and I felt like, like, like he needed to duck because of the plank sticking out of my eyes. I turned back over here, right? <laughs> like it was one of those moments where it just shaped how I actually related to my wife because I realized that God was here. And it can be humbling, y'all. To try to be a good dad to my three kids that I love, I cherish them, but quite frankly, sometimes I'm selfish. Sometimes I'm tired. Sometimes they ask so much and they need so much and there's so much sacrifice that needs to take place for them. And the only way I can give that to them is when I look to the good father and realize what he's given to me. And I know some of you go, well, I don't have children yet. (laughs) There are people in the dorms who are plenty childish for that. There will be a line of people in the church you serve in who will be ready to sit in that chair. And you will need to remember how good God has been to you and how much he has forgiven you even when you have gossiped and criticized and rejected and taken for granted his sacrifice and his love and his goodness and his mercy. You see, what needs to happen is I need to see this chair and then and only then can I evaluate what's in this chair. Because if I evaluate what's in this chair without evaluating what, who sits in this chair, then honestly, that it's about what I want and what I wish. Well, well, wait a second, Jim. That's what the text says, right? I mean, chair number two. So whatever you wish. Huh. Here's the funny thing about that word. Jesus has been shaping that word throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. I know, I know. I told you that this sermon was on Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, one little verse. I kind of snuck in a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount too. But chapter seven, verse 12, this word wish is this word want or desire. And throughout the entire sermon, guess what Jesus has been doing? He's been doing two things. One is casting a vision for a kingdom that shows the heart of God. The second thing is this, casting a vision that shows the heart of the people who are repenting and following in the kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Oh, So can you trace this word with me, this word wish or will that follows throughout the text? Chapter 6, verse 10, our Father, you know it, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or maybe after our text, chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the the will the wish of my Father who is in heaven. We could even go after the Sermon on the Mount and find this word. I find it intriguing that it's right after the context. A leper comes up to Jesus and says this, Lord, if you wish, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, that's exactly what I want. Jesus challenges us after looking at him to evaluate our own heart. That's not always comfortable. Sometimes that gets in the way of some of the arguments I have with the people I love most. It stops me in my tracks and causes me to repent. My kids need to hear me say I was wrong. They need to hear me say I was wrong in front of them and to my wife and honestly at times to people in the church and and honestly some of my coworkers at times here need to hear I'm sorry. And we have to have these three chair conversations. Maybe you've heard yourself say, but at least I've never murdered. 
Jesus would say, but have you been so angry that you've insulted your brother? There's more than one way to destroy someone who is treasured and created by him, paid for by his blood. Maybe this is why Jesus would encourage you before ever bringing a gift to him that you actually like recognize that this other person is here, that this is actually what God treasures more than your gift. See, I'll fail to see the value in this person unless I realize how much he actually values them and what he's willing to give up for them. Maybe you've heard yourself say, I've never committed adultery, and yet the Spirit reminds you, yeah, but you've had lust in your heart toward the person who sits in this chair. You've created them in the image that makes them as if they are here to please you. Maybe you've heard yourself say things like, well, at least I've never been divorced, and some of you who have, he again recognized the reconciliation and mercy that is here, but maybe you've said, well, at least I've never divorced, and Yet you're, you're easily tossing people aside who are no longer convenient and no longer making you happy and no longer bringing you pleasure because they're no advantage to you. You've heard yourself say, well, at least I had never lied to you. And you've worked loopholes. Remember that student pledge at the beginning of the semester. You've heard yourself say, of course, I would turn the other cheek and go the extra mile if I was persecuted, but you won't do that for the person sitting next to you. You've heard yourself say, but they've hurt me. They've said evil against me. I, I want to be sensitive to the fact that there are people who sit in this chair who at times have hurt you in ways more significant than what I on stage can recognize or even draw attention to. I, I want to recognize that with a sensitivity and, and challenge you rather than looking to me to look to the Father and ask God, how can I live out this, this moment And is it face-to-face? Because I think sometimes it can't be face-to-face. I think sometimes it is in your own heart and it is an opportunity to bring healing. But I I want you to know that relationships are hard. But I think in those moments, Jesus would say, perhaps whisper, I know what it's like to be hurt. And I loved you and you were hostile toward me and my, my blood was just as much for you as it was for them. So Jesus would challenge us to love perfectly like the heavenly father is perfect. Jesus wants to help me see. He wants to help me see him for who he is. He wants me to see me, but he also wants me to help me see this person and see the value of the person who sits in this chair. But before I ever deal with them, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. I need to have a clear vision of who I am. Jesus did what he wishes we would do to others. And he transforms what we wish. So, chapter seven, verse 12. Whatever you wish, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do also to them. Now, many rabbis and other teachers have said this in the negative form, and so sometimes it is pointed out. Notice that Jesus says this in the positive. You do. In fact, I think it's very intentional that it's very proactive. But that is, by the way, grace. Like grace is God the Father doing something for us when I've done absolutely nothing to deserve it. Do. 
And then I started tracing this word because Mark Scott always hangs in my head when I'm writing sermons. I find it interesting that this little word is, I don't know, a theme in the sermon. Chapter five, verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers. It's a compound word, the doers of peace. Chapter five, verse 19, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And whoever does them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Chapter five, verse 47, if you only love those like you, what more are you doing than anyone else? Chapter six, verse one, beware of doing your righteousness before other people. It goes on, beware of doing, beware of doing your giving before uh, the, the needy, before other people. Do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Chapter seven, verse 17, you will recognize a tree by the doing of their fruit, the bearing of their fruit. Chapter seven, verse 21, whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven. Chapter seven, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. See, sometimes the person sitting in this chair doesn't actually deserve what I do to them at all. But that's the heart of Jesus expressed in grace. He calls me to initiate grace first, to extend mercy first, to offer reconciliation first, to love first. And my believing in who God is transforms me, reorients me so much that this belief turns into doing. We do to them because he did for us. We show them Jesus even though they don't acknowledge he's in the conversation because some of you will have relationships like this where you'll recognize that God is in the conversation but they won't really recognize he's in the conversation. The reality is this, the only way they're gonna see what grace actually looks like is by looking at you. The only way they're gonna see what mercy and forgiveness looks like is because you're reflecting it from God. And some of you have family members like this. Some of you have friends like this that you'll see that you've not seen since high school. Some of you will be the only, the only reflection of God that they will see in another person. And I just want to challenge you. It's hard. It's easy to talk about here in the classroom. I believe that all healthy theology is lived out in context of relationship. In fact, if we look at the Bible, we don't find a, a list of systematic theologies. What we find are situational theologies, letters written to churches and, and histories written for people who need to be reminded of who God is and who they are. What we find is theology written into the context of relationship because what God wants to do is remind us of who he is and transform us how we have here. You hear Jesus say other things like this in Matthew, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor. This sums up the law and the prophets. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, that really does change things. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We like to talk about not taking and warn people about not taking that verse out of context. My fear is, is that we fail to put it back into context. Context of that verse is conflict, confrontation. Will we be just as aware of Jesus' presence in the midst of conflict as we are in the midst of communion? I think Jesus intentionally says that, not because at some point Jesus isn't with us, but just we need the reminder when this is hard. 
we need the reminder that he is there with us. And we need the reminder that we are loved and therefore we should love, that we are forgiven and therefore we should forgive, that we didn't earn it and therefore they don't have to, that we didn't deserve it and neither do they, that we didn't ask for it and they might not ask for it. And that sometimes we were hostile toward him and he was still loving toward us. And sometimes we were unfaithful and they were faithful. And sometimes we rejected it and abused it and took it for granted. And yet we were still loved. My prayer is, may they see Jesus in us. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. You see, peacemaking is not just a personality style. It's a family trait. And they need to see it in us. They need to see it in the family picture.